Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The province is putting wholesalers, distributors and manufacturers of opioids on notice. They're coming after them for their part in the ongoing overdose crisis. BC is launching a lawsuit to recoup some costs, naming 40 drug companies. Ted Chernecki explains who's involved and the damages the province is seeking. Today, another three or four people will die from an overdose in British Columbia. BC is on pace to set another record in overdose fatalities. Unless something changes, more than 1,500 lives could be lost in the ongoing opioid crisis. In the States, more than 100 opioid lawsuits have been filed by county and local governments against pharmaceuticals, hospitals, and doctors. Now, BC becomes the first province to go after the pharmaceutical giants in a class action lawsuit. Today, we are clearly saying that pharmaceutical companies must take responsibility for their role and put the lives of people before profit. Every addict has a story, and many are a long way from the downtown east side. Look at Kevin Stevens. What a playoff year he had. Pro athletes like two-time Stanley Cup champion Kevin Stevens lost more than $20 million to opioids. After he took a severe hit during a game, he was prescribed large doses of opioids as painkillers and quickly became addicted. His documentary, Shattered, tells his story. I spent millions of dollars doing it. Seeing all these good people that run out of money and they go to heroin, they go to all these things because it just takes and takes and takes to stop. BC will also argue that pharmaceuticals knew they were promoting a product already proven to be highly addictive and still deliberately played down the risks. These are huge costs that are being incurred by the province as a result of what we allege to be negligence and corruption on the part of some very major uh, companies. Forty companies will be targeted, including Purdue Pharma, makers of OxyContin. In a statement, Purdue said it always marketed its products in compliance with all relevant rules, regulations and codes, including all Health Canada and international regulations. Other provinces can join BC's lawsuit, but a decision could take years. Simply because it may take a while for us to see some results from this doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. Ted Chernahi, Global News. Richard Zussman joins us now live from Victoria with more on the lawsuit. And Richard, the province has been down this road before, but with questionable results. Yeah, Chris, we can look at exactly how long something like this may take place by looking back two decades. British Columbia became the first jurisdiction in all of the Commonwealth to sue tobacco companies. That happened back in 1998. Let's take a look at the timeline of how long all of this has taken. So it started in 1998, and then in 2000, the Supreme Court in B.C. called the suit unconstitutional. Then go forward to 2005, the Supreme Court of Canada 
Canada sided with BC on the lawsuit. 2012, other provinces jumped in to make it a class action. And finally, next year, we are expecting the first cost recovery trial, and that's going to be in place in New Brunswick. But one lawyer told me today that he believes that the precedent set by the tobacco case and how long it took could actually mean that things go much faster in the opioid case. The government now can take advantage of those precedents that were set. And I think if legislation is introduced, and I understood from the from uh, Attorney General's news conference this morning that that's the intention, that if legislation is introduced, it will be sort of closely patterned on the tobacco uh, legislation that has been upheld by the courts. All right, Richard, any estimate on how much the lawsuit against opioid companies could end up costing the province? Yeah, lawyers are telling me, Chris, that it could cost millions of dollars to settle this in terms of legal fees and court costs, but it could be worth it in the long run. If you just look at that tobacco case, it has been settled in the states. All 50 states uh, made a settlement with the big tobacco companies for the tune of $250 billion billion with a B, Chris, dollars. So it could make a big impact depending on how much money. It could take some time, but there could be a substantial payout here. And let's hope it doesn't take 20 years. We'll stay on top <laughs> of it, too. All right, Richard Zussman in Victoria. Thank you. Well, this year's wildfire season is now the worst on record. The B.C. Wildfire Service says 1.25 million hectares have burned so far this year. That officially replaces last year's record of 1.21 million hectares. Total cost to date is more than $350 million. The news comes as the province extends its state of emergency for another two weeks. Even though this is now considered the worst wildfire season in terms of numbers of hectares burned, um, that's just one factor that goes into determining the severity of the wildfire season. Certainly the fact that we've had two very busy seasons back to back, um, that definitely is something to take into consideration. A warning tonight from Burnaby RCMP about a number of sextortion incidents involving the threat of releasing shared intimate videos, images or explicit messages online. Our Julia Foy has more on how this sextortion scam works and RCMP are saying that it all starts with a friend request, Julia. Absolutely. Now, who doesn't get friend requests almost every day on various social media platforms? The problem is that Burnaby RCMP are saying since May of this year, 24 people have contacted them after they accepted a friend request from a stranger. They developed an online relationship and they were convinced to send sexually explicit photos, videos or messages. And a short time later, the threats began. And that's where sextortion kicks in. The victim is asked to transfer money, uh, usually via Bitcoin or uh, money transfer, in order to stop the uh, release of this material online. It's basically uh, blackmail. We have nothing to indicate that it's the same as us, Um It's not common. Uh, we don't see a lot of this on a regular basis in Burnaby. Um, so I, I, we don't suspect it's one suspect. Now, Burnaby RCMP have this advice. Do not accept re uh, requests from people that you don't know and don't comply with any of their threats. Stop all communication with that person, but keep the correspondence with that individual. Report the incident to police immediately. And of course, it's always a good idea to talk to your friends and family about these kind of scams to try and protect 
other people from becoming victims. Sophie, Chris. All right. Thanks for that. Julia Foy in Burnaby. The number of motorcycle deaths is way up over the same period last year. Grace Key has more on the warning from the coroner and a closer look at the factors contributing to the carnage. Luckily, the motorcyclist survived in this collision in Abbotsford Tuesday night, but latest numbers are showing tragic endings. According to the BC Coroner Service, there were 30 motorcycle deaths so far this year, 18 just in July. That's more than double from the same time last year. Some believe motorcycles are growing in popularity. Our complaint for years was motorcycle safety consisted of, here, put on a helmet. Uh, we don't care if you're wearing flip-flops and we don't care if you're wearing sandals. He lost another mark for speed. Safety education has come a long way. Pro-Ride motorcycle training offers not only motorcycle but also scooter training. Whether you're on the biggest bike or the smallest bike, you know, it's really a good idea to take some kind of training um, from a proper and certified training school. The study also found that most motorcycle fatalities involve speeding and alcohol. Nine in ten were men. Most resided in B.C. and a majority of deaths occurred in the interior and Fraser Health regions. Street legal licensed dirt bikes, mopeds and scooters are also included in the study. Some don't require a Class 6 license, though many believe training should be required. Well, the answer, of course, is um, a stepped-up training um, program. All of the statistics have demonstrated that most motorcycle moped fatalities occur within the first 200 hours of operation. Take your first 20 hours of training in a supervised environment and learn properly how to do it. With more public awareness, everyone is hoping for a safe end to this riding season. Grace Key, Global News. Central Saanich police are looking for witnesses to an accident that may have involved the same vehicle that later struck and killed a pedestrian and injured her sister. On Monday night, two women were walking their dogs along Central Saanich Road when police say a vehicle crossed the center line and struck the pair. Police are now looking to speak with witnesses to a crash that happened about 20 minutes before this one involving a black sedan being rear-ended by a red Jeep on Mount Newton Crossroad at Lockside Drive. And after more than two months of investigation, the cause of a fatal apartment fire in North Vancouver remains undetermined. The fire broke out early in the morning on June 11th in the 2000 block of Whiteley Court in the Lynn Valley area. Crews battled the flames for several hours before police and fire personnel could safely enter the building. Tragically, a mother and her young son died in the fire. As suspicious cash flowed through the River Rock Casino in Richmond, a global news investigation points to concern over employees shredding the paper records that were tied to VIPs who gambled with thousands of dollars. John Waugh explains why it might have resulted in high rollers avoiding scrutiny from Canada's anti-money laundering agency. The BC Lottery Corporation asked to meet with great Canadian executives in April of 2017 to discuss the casino operator's large cash transaction compliance. Now, according to a source with knowledge of that meeting, BCLC investigators alleged that River Rock employees were shredding paper records of certain cash transactions throughout the day. Now, while it was noted that these alleged transactions were all below the $10,000 limit that requires FinTrack be notified for anti-money laundering purposes, the concern was that multiple cash transactions made by the same person within a 24-hour period that added up to $10,000 or more may have also gone unreported. 
Great Canadian would not put up anyone for an interview, but states River Rock undertakes to be in compliance with all regulations and files large cash transaction reports for all transactions, $10,000 and over. Great Canadian adds it has never faced enforcement activity based on its reporting practices. But an anonymous source who used to work in River Rock's VIP rooms tells Global News that the dealers and supervisors on the floor never cared or questioned a high limit player's source of income or where they get playing chips, as long as they tipped a big amount. That former employee also says that staff referred to a VIP who tipped $500 or more in a single session as a Santa Claus. Great Canadian says when it comes to relationships between staff and VIPs, it has strict policies to prevent or identify any inappropriate activity. Still, some critics say stronger investigation is needed into Great Canadian's entire VIP program, reinforcing calls for a public inquiry. John Hua, Global News. We've been reporting on the trend of illegal dumping on the Lower Mainland. Local municipalities saddled with clearing away piles of debris often randomly dropped in the middle of the night. Aaron MacArthur explains how quickly the problem has grown and the cost of cleaning it all up. You got a weave a basket. Lid. It looks like a barbecue lid. This construction site in East Vancouver like, uh, has a garbage problem. Not its own, just random trash people were too lazy to deal with properly. Arthur Lynn, 261 East 65th Avenue. <laughs> Larry Clay has sites all over the city, and it's the same at all of them. It means added costs to his clients. The disposal company uh, could be, uh, or ourselves, could be liable up to $30,000. So we have to go in, visually check to see what's in there, and make sure nothing gets covered. Like every municipality, Vancouver has faced a major spike in the amount of trash thrown out illegally. Of particular concern, mattresses. There is a crew that works Monday to Friday, 40 hours a week, doing nothing but collecting used mattresses. And there are a lot of them. So in addition to the 4,800 mattresses the city collects every year, the volume of garbage is astonishing. This year alone, in the first half of the year, there have been 12,000 calls for service and nearly 1,500 tons of garbage collected. It costs taxpayers uh, close to $2 million a year uh, to deal with this. And so, you know, those costs go to collecting the items as well as uh, educational programs, outreach programs. So, yeah, it's, it's costly. There is little the city can do. Finding violators is difficult and proving someone is responsible harder yet. It's a combination of education, enforcement, and uh, providing that service too. The city is looking at new methods of monitoring dumping hotspots, but for now is simply encouraging people to report problems and then wait for the trash to be picked up. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Incidentally, it costs 15 bucks to drop a mattress off at the city of Vancouver landfill. Obviously too much for some people. But first, the controversy over Canada's first prime minister isn't over in B.C.'s capital city. Victoria Mayor Lisa Helps is now apologizing for the way a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald was removed from the front of City Hall. And as Kylie Stanton reports, she's promising a more inclusive process in trying to figure out what to do with it now. It came down amid cheers and jeers from a crowd divided. But once this statue of Canada's first Prime Minister was out of sight, it wasn't out of mind. 
Far from it. Well, there's have been a lot of reaction, and I would have to say most of it has been negative uh, to the quick removal of the statue. It's coming from the general public. I think it was a mistake to do that. To powerful politicians, even the premier is weighing in. That's really a federal and a provincial responsibility, and the city, I think, uh, was trying to do its best, and I think it came out badly. Today, Victoria's mayor apologized for the way the statue removal was handled, what was meant to be in the spirit of reconciliation. Helps posted this editorial to her campaign website, writing, I didn't recognize the great desire of Victoria residents to participate in reconciliation actions. The process going forward will enable this. I'm pleased that she's apologized because that hurt an awful lot of people in the country. I totally understand the drama behind it. The decision was made in early August by what's known as the City Family, consisting of a group of councillors and First Nations representatives. It was meant to make City Hall a more welcoming place for everyone, particularly those harmed and haunted by Sir John A. Macdonald's involvement in the creation of the residential school system. Every time City family members walk into a gathering about reconciliation, they need to walk past this, this figure. Instead, the City installed this plaque but were forced to replace it as quickly as it went up after someone carved a large X across it, a sign of the public's frustration that's only continued to grow. If she put it to the people, I think it would still be here. Now the focus has shifted to where the statue will go. With an election looming, it's not the only decision people seem ready and willing to chime in on. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. Thousands of post-secondary students are about to head back to class and many are running head first into BC's housing crisis. On campus, housing still can't meet demand. And as Nadia Stewart reports, more and more students are finding that leaving home to live off campus isn't an option either. With just days to go until the start of the school year, hundreds of students begin settling into life at Simon Fraser University, choosing a dorm room on campus over any other option out there. Off campus is a little cheaper if you can find a place. It's, it seemed easier to make ends meet when I lived on campus rather than living off campus. 1,600 students are moving in this year. Another 200 are on a waiting list. The university says it's working to meet the ever-growing demand. We are building new residences that will open up in a couple of years. Um, but certainly we could always have more students live with us. Until then, many try their luck in Metro Vancouver's impossible rental market. It could be why so many youth end up choosing this option. A new survey finding the rising cost of housing in Metro Vancouver, coupled with the absence of exclusive student housing, forcing many students to stay put with mom and dad. More than 50% uh, of students today really are struggling with the idea of being able to leave their parents' home and take that rite of passage that so many university students uh, want to take. More than 50% of them are telling us that they really cannot afford to do that and if they can it's going to have to be subsidized by their, their parents. And even their cell phone bill. We've got about half of youth who are uh, dependent on the parents for their cell phone bill. So it's a real challenge for youth in the province of BC to uh, get ahead these days. News that likely won't come as a surprise to many, particularly millennials who've been vocal lately about their financial challenges, expressing their concern for the future. There is about 25% of the population of youth that really feel challenged, about 10% that are on the verge of crisis. Uh, we've only got about a quarter that really feel like they have uh, themselves set up for the future, they're able to pay their bills and feel optimistic about the future. Experts say both students and parents need a financial plan these days in order to navigate this new reality. Nadia Stork, Global News.
About 20,000 Air Canada customers have been told their personal information might have been accessed. The airline locked down all 1.7 million accounts on its mobile app after detecting unusual login activity. But some accounts might have been compromised, containing names, email addresses and phone numbers, along with aeroplan and passport numbers. Air Canada says credit card information is not affected. The threat actors today are no longer a bunch of kids sitting in a basement hacking away. This is all organized crime. And 1.7 million records is what we know right now. It could be more. Uh, so this is definitely a big deal. Ottawa says the risk of someone obtaining a passport in someone else's name is low if a person still has their passport and supporting documents. Users of the Air Canada app have been given instructions on how to reactivate their accounts. Fishing boats crash into each other as French and English fishermen fight over access to the scallop-rich waters off France's northern coast. In previous years, both sides have been able to reach a deal on sharing the stocks, but this year they couldn't come to an agreement. The French fishermen outnumbered the English boats and chased them away, but no one was hurt in the end. A shocking turn of events in New Mexico where 11 children were found starving and living in filth and where the body of a three-year-old boy was discovered. A judge has dismissed child neglect charges against three of the five people who were arrested and accused of training the children to carry out school shootings, all because prosecutors missed a court deadline. In Taos, New Mexico, all charges dismissed against the suspects accused of child abuse and alleged terrorism at a secret desert compound. The charges dropped on a technicality after prosecutors failed to meet a preliminary hearing deadline. The rule is very clear that um, if somebody is in custody and 10 days goes by, that the district court shall dismiss the matter without prejudice. Late today, the district attorney refiling charges against two of the suspects, including conspiracy and abuse of a child, resulting in death. This just after prosecutors submitted a handwritten document seized from the compound titled Phases of a Terrorist Attack. The dismissal, a shocking turn of events in a case that started with a dead child and an alarming threat. Five suspected Muslim extremists accused of abusing 11 children while training them to use an assault rifle for future school shootings, according to court documents. The raid on the compound has been plagued with problems. Investigators say this is where they found 11 starving children and the body of a three-year-old hidden in this underground tunnel. The FBI, prosecutors, and the sheriff's department all refusing repeated requests by NBC News to answer questions about the handling of the case, including why NBC's Gotti Schwartz was able to walk among the piles of potential evidence, like large amounts of ammo or body armor that were left behind uncollected, or why a court order resulted in the compound being destroyed, including the underground tunnel, which is now buried in rubble. Tonight, many fear the suspects will soon be released back into the community. Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. Police in Brampton, Ontario say it's a miracle no one died in a fiery crash early this morning. An SUV slammed into a house and burst into flames with three men trapped inside. And that's when neighbors stepped in. What's in the back door? 
Cell phone video captured the dramatic moments after a car slammed into the front of a Brampton home and burst into flames, trapping three passengers inside. DeAndre Stevenson lives a few doors down and heard the crash and rushed to save them. I saw two guys outside the car trying to save the passengers on the inside. Um, got two of the guys out, got the driver and the other passenger in the front. And then the last guy was in the back seat. He was stuck. I took the guy, dragged him out as soon as possible, brought him to the edge of the streets. The second guy barely made it out, and as I was taking the third guy out, I could, I, I could feel the heat coming from inside the car. Basically, at this point, the fire was inside the car, and then I could see. I, I could see the guy's like, leg almost getting on fire. It happened just after one this morning. The car was traveling northbound on Credit View, south of Williams Parkway, when it missed the turn and instead plowed through the fence, crossed four lanes of traffic, smashed through another fence and ended up on the other side of Credit View, north of Williams Parkway, where it ripped through a lawn and fence, rolled and ended in a fiery crash. When you look at the path of destruction, it is amazing no one else was injured. You can see where the car went airborne, flipped right over a six-foot shed on the other side of that fence, Landed, flipped over those three cars where it ended on its side in front of the house. Flames from the burning vehicle then spread to the family home, but luckily the family inside managed to make it out okay. Police say speed and alcohol were factors in this crash. The 28-year-old male driver is now in police custody. Two occupants of the vehicle remain in hospital with serious injuries. Marianne Demain, Global News. Caught on dash camera, a semi-trailer in New Jersey crashes and spills its load in what police are calling a road rage incident. Just before the video, the driver of an SUV had apparently pulled in front of the semi and tried to get it to slow down because the semi was speeding and driving erratically. Well, the semi, possibly trying to catch up to the SUV, tipped on a curve and crashed. The trailer split open, spilling, spilling its load of candy across the road. Luckily, no one was hurt, but both drivers were given tickets. And a dash camera in Australia captures a fireball lighting up the sky above Perth. Security cameras also catching the meteorite as it fell to Earth. Returning to our top story now, in the NDP government launching a class action lawsuit against the pharmaceutical industry over the overdose crisis. Linda Aylesworth explains how opioids, once considered a miracle drug, turned out to be the root of a major health care disaster. When Michelle Jansen heard the provincial government was taking opioid-producing pharmaceutical companies to court, she was elated. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a clear sign that the government acknowledges that we are in a health care crisis. Michelle lost her 20-year-old son Brandon to a fentanyl overdose two years ago. So did Sandra Tully. Her son was 22. They've created a problem. Wouldn't it be nice if they helped with the solution and put all the money, the millions and billions that they've made back into um, services that will help these people. But what do legally produced and prescribed opioids have to do with the deadly overdose crisis? When your son Jake steals some of these from the medicine cabinet, he's going to take them to a party where he'll share them with a girl he likes named Leanne, who's going to drink some alcohol and then have convulsions and a cardiovascular collapse. Typically, uh, what I hear from families, it has mostly started from prescription opioids, whether they were prescribed it or they received it or they took it from a family member. He has her love of reading. He has my oxycodone. 
there's this misconception because it's a prescription drug that it's not going to kill you, that it's not going to dismantle your life. It's the drug's addictive nature that makes it most dangerous. So that prescription runs out, so they need to have something so they will go to the streets. Where the drugs can be tainted with fentanyl, up to 100 times more powerful than heroin. And that is what legally produced and prescribed opioids have to do with the deadly overdose crisis. Definitely think this is a good start. Um, they need to be held accountable for their action in this crisis. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. What is proper attire down at the PNE tonight? Let's find out from Christy Gordon. Back from vacation. Nice to see you, Christy. How are, how's everything down there? <laughs> Well, we're good. We're good. Uh, we're here in the barn, Chris, Sophie, uh, for a good old-fashioned pig race, of course. It's a staple here at the PNE, and I'm going to be feeding one of the pigs a little bit uh, later. First, though, let's talk about weather. It is We Love Water Wednesday. Uh, here's a tip for you. Set a timer as a reminder to turn off your sprinkler and a healthy lawn only needs one hour per week of watering. Looking outside, I mean, it was nice. We broke out of that cloud, not completely, but it was nice to see some blue sky. It brightened up this afternoon, looking a little hazy out there, but we did warm up to 21. We're at 19 now here at the p and We're also at 19 degrees, but it's feeling fine now that the showers have tapered off, but we're still talking about wildfires. It is very crucial. 535 fires, close to 50 fires of note still going on and we're concerned about the potential of more. They're still through the central interior, a fire danger rating of extreme. Also Vancouver Island and the lower mainland at extreme levels and we've got lightning pushing through the region right now. Now it's also bringing moisture to areas further south so that is good news for areas like the Thompson region, the Okanagan Valley where the relative humidity has increased in the last little while but the forecast for tomorrow shows more lightning on the way. Temperatures lower, that's good news. More cloud cover is good news also, but we will see that chance of showers and a risk of thunderstorms through the afternoon hours across the south. In the south coast region, we're expecting showers in the morning with breaks towards the end of the day. Those of you in the interior or uh, valley, though, you won't see those breaks of blue sky, but we certainly are hoping for those in Metro Vancouver. So far, your long weekend looking pretty nice. I would like to introduce you to Buffalo Bill. He runs uh, Richard's Racers. At such, I saw the show just a little bit ago. So exciting. You've been here for 10 years. Why do you keep coming back? Oh, because I just love racing pigs, raising pigs and the crowd. The crowd is the best part about it. The little kids, the adults, and they just keep coming back again. You know, we say, how many people have been in a pig race? Oh, they all go. Yes. It doesn't take much to come back, yeah. I know you were saying it's not even just, just during the shows. You invite people to come by oh, yeah. even between the shows. Yeah, we pretty much sit here through in between shows. People come to you, ask what time the next show is, and they say, why don't you put a sign on the time? Because I love to interact with the people. They ask you time next thing you know, you're gabbing with them for 10, 15 minutes. Oh, yeah, it's, it's the interaction with everybody here. Yeah. And they're welcome to come by and feed the pigs. Now, Absolutely. the show itself yeah. is really interactive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We get little kids and, and adults. It's amazing how many grown-ups want to come down there. We get some little kids, and they get them dressed up and put a little bib on them and nose. And I tell you, the kids just say the darndest thing. You never know what's going to come out, right? I actually do know that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, hey, can I You, you want to feed the pigs? Sure, sure. They're not going to bite no, me, no. are they? Come here, guys. Who? What's the name of this one? The, this one the black one, yeah. That, that's Donald Rump. Sorry. 
McDonald's. <laughs> okay, they're not even looking at me. No, oh, they're, they're more gotta, tearing up my tarp than anything. Oh, they're not even interested. Can't even believe it. All right, uh, I'll throw it back to your new studio now. Thanks so much, Buffalo her. Bill. Thanks sure. for having us you here. Betcha. And uh, back to you guys. I'll save it for you guys. How about? Oh, <laughs> Ignoring a snack from Christy Gordon. I can't believe it. Pigs don't know what they're missing. <laughs> Thanks, Christy. All right, officials at the U.S. Open in New York are doing some serious backpedaling tonight after a player was penalized for a wardrobe malfunction. French player Alizé Cornet had returned from a break in her match wearing a new shirt, but then she realized she had it on backwards. Well, she quickly took it off and flipped it around, but that's when the chair umpire called a code violation. Critics pointed out male players often take off their shirts entirely with no penalty. The U.S. Open quickly released a statement saying Cornet had not committed a violation. Now, this comes after the head of the French Tennis Federation criticized this black Nike catsuit Serena Williams wore at the French Open earlier this year. Williams said the suit was a compression outfit that helped prevent blood clots that plagued her after she gave birth to her daughter Alexis. In response to that controversy, tennis legend Billie Jean King tweeted, the policing of women's bodies must end. He said you got to respect the game. Like, who has respected the game more than Serena, than Williams? Serena Williams? She's an incredible talent. Tennis has to get over its elitism. No kidding. It's, it's ridiculous. Get over the elitism. You know, I, I mean, they're not, it's not like they're coming out in a ripped T-shirt or something. Right. And they want Serena Williams in the game. Like, you don't want to. Well, yeah, and, and that suit helped her because she's had some blood yes. clot issues. Mm -hmm. So it's like the fans, it's, it's not like the fans got up and all left because they couldn't stand looking at it. It's some elitist goof uh, French Open. Uh, keep it clean. Keep it clean. Goof? <laughs> <laughs> I could think of other thinking... words. <laughs> all right, speaking of tennis. Yes, I've got lots of it. Because all the Canadian men left in U.S. Open singles were on the court today. Although, actually, I should say Vancouver's Vosik Pospisil, he's playing underneath the lights in front of the big crowd at Arthur Ashe Stadium because he has to play men's number one, Rafael Nadal. It's actually the second time in his career that Pospisil has had to stare over the net at Rafael Nadal. He lost in straight sets to Nadal back in 2015 in Beijing. And before we uh, check out Shapovalov at Ronich's matches today, we mentioned Serena Williams. She's going to play Venus Friday in the third round. Okay. Denis Shapovalov, Andrei Asepi, they had to go to a fifth and final set. At one point, Seppi was up two sets to one. Shapovalov won the fourth set. Now fifth set, he seems to be getting stronger. Seppi seems to be weakening. This is a nice rally and a nice point for Shapovalov, who is in the furthest part of the court, as far as our viewership is concerned. Uh, now he's in the near court. This puts him up 5-3, nice. All right, for the win in three hours and 47 minutes of action, Shapovalov survives in five sets. Earlier today, Milos Ronic had a bit of an easier time against Gilles Simon. First set, Ronic, far court, wins at 6-3. Second set. Ronich, near court now. Down the line. Wow. Beautiful forehand. Great forehand. I love this uh, exchange here. 
Simone gets it, and then he gets this one with the tweener shot. Chase it down. Whoa. Do not try that on your local that tennis court. Twice? No, not that time. Well, you might be singing high notes. Ronich wins that. Takes the second set, 6-4. Little drop shot here in the third set coming up. Uh-huh. Ball game. Ronich moves on. Ronich has never gone past the fourth round at the U.S. Open. Uh, they backed the money truck up to his house today. Aaron Rodgers signed a four-year extension with Green Bay. It'll total at least $134 million. Could go as high as $180 if he hits all the incentive clauses, which means the annual average value, $33.5 million. And if you're wondering, that's a record for an NFL quarterback. For a Oh, sorry. No, what are you I thought that was it. No, I thought that was it. Never mind. What? Well, it's just, hasn't he had concussions? Well, he's, he got broke his collarbone last year. Got some issues. But he's anyway. still Aaron Rodgers. <laughs> that's true. Uh, they say losing builds character. If that's the case, every SFU football player we've seen in the past three years and a bit would be the most character guys you've ever met. They have not won a game, SFU, since October 18, 2014. Since then, they have lost by scores such as 57 to nothing twice, 68 to 7, 62 to nothing. 51 to nothing and 83 to 7. But they have a new coach, and maybe this is a year they finally win. Guys, one thing I'm gonna remind you guys if you spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror, you will crash 100% of the time. So from this meeting forward, I don't wanna hear anything about last year or two years ago or my freshman year, because that doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. That means nothing. The only thing that matters now is the work you're willing to put in. It was a very early preseason pep talk delivered by SFU's new football coach, Thomas Ford, to a team that hasn't won a football game in three full seasons. That's a lot of losses, 33 straight and counting. I haven't won a game that I've played in uh, yet at SFU, so yeah, I'm super hungry. Do you remember what it feels like to win? Man, uh, it's been a while, but you know, just because our, our win and loss column says what it is, you know, I don't identify myself as anything other than a winner. Losing the losing culture requires a seismic shift in thinking and playing. Since joining the NCAA, the football team has never had a record of 500 or better. Last year, the opposition averaged 55 points a game. With 28 new recruits and 51 returning players, it's not too difficult to decipher the X and O's on what's needed here. What will one victory mean for this program? I think we just need that one win to get it rolling. Once we get that one win, we can just keep riding off of it, but we just need that first one. Really, our number one team goal is to improve every day. You know, that, and that can be measured, right? We, we can take a look at what they're doing in practice, what they're doing on film, and, and again, it's either you got better or you got worse. And, and our goal is, to, again, improve every single day. So we've really been focused so much on the process and the things that you need to be successful that I think that that's where our, our mindset is, is what, what are the things we control? And if we're working hard and we're getting better every single day, uh, we're gonna, you know, those things are the things that are, you know, those produce wins versus, you know, success only being viewed as wins and losses. There you go. Hopefully so, they can win this year. Yeah, hope mm -hmm. so. A lot of people yeah. pulling for them. All right, thanks, Squire. Okay, I've been looking forward to this one. Street of Dreams at the PNE. There's some great, You're great a car cars guy. down there. Mm -hmm. Lots of people love looking at cars, and the Street of Dreams, which is. If you go to the Pacific Coliseum, it kind of starts there and goes down by the racetrack, and mm -hmm. that's where it is. 
So let's walk down the street of dreams. They can't drive or starting them up for insurance reasons, but we'll take a look at them anyways. Here they go. It is called the street of dreams and for serious enthusiasts and motorheads, it's a dream they do not want to be awakened from. This is where the old becomes new again or morphs into something out of a comic book. We built that vehicle eight years ago and it's a 51 Merc and it is, it's literally high centered on the ground, it's so low. Um, it is just a super cool car. There are many models that you'll recognize, but most are from the 1970s or before. Is there one specific type that you see more of, like people bring it to you and say, I want this customized? Mustangs, Camaros, uh, Chevelles, uh, you know, late 60s, early 70s Mopars are a fairly common car. Pickup trucks, pickup trucks are so hot right now, it is, it's fairly mind-boggling. Really? Pickup yeah, trucks. pickup trucks are super hot right now, yeah. Now, we really could have picked any vehicle to focus on and we wouldn't have gone wrong. But we decided on this one, a Continental, that was born in the early 60s, but has been built, or more precisely, rebuilt, for the 21st century. So all it's original is these stainless uh, moldings, the taillights and the front grill, and that's it. Every other piece of this car has been cu customized, modified, adjusted, or made for the car. It, it's got uh, the leather and it's a Bentley. It's got a Ferrari steering wheel. Uh, it has a $100,000 sound system. And the specially built Ford motor puts out about 12 to 1400 horsepower which sounds impressive, but the car's probably 9,000 pounds. So it's probably the same as a 400 horsepower car. And what kind of gas mileage does it get? It's probably gallons per feet. It's probably, a tank probably would last uh, maybe 40 minutes. I think full, maybe half an hour. But uh, like they say, if you can afford it, you probably don't worry about the gas. Isn't oh, that shiny. true? Yeah, somebody does own that car. Somebody in the Fraser Valley, I don't know who, they wouldn't say but somebody does own it. 360 Restorations does pretty amazing work, though, no doubt about it. All right, let's head back to the PNE where Christy Gordon is hanging out with uh, the pigs tonight. Christy, I think. Hi, you guys. Yes, Donald Rump here, Kevin Bacon. They are ready to eat this time. They're ready to eat. Sorry. I mean, just... You almost what lost a finger. Am, but, oh, my gosh. They, they, I know. They are hungry. What are they eating? <laughs> this is totally my natural habitat. <laughs> there, that's all I have, guys. What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> eh? Nothing. I heard Nothing. a squeal. <laughs> Wait, Kevin Bacon and what? Donald Rump. <laughs> and there's one named Pamela Anderson as well. Okay. Um, a few others. Excellent. Thanks, Anyways, Christy. that was very exciting. I'd Good like to luck. now step away. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for watching. Good night, all. <laughs>